0: Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello, my name is Greg Monteith, and welcome to this podcast. In today's podcast, I want to talk about a couple of things, particularly about the notion of interpreting and the necessity of interpretation. This is something that, uh, on the one hand, I I guess I would have thought that the amount of time that John and I have spent talking about interpretation would have probably been more than enough time to cover off on all the various aspects of this topic. And yet, the more I am involved with uh, Christians, the more I am involved in uh, conversations about God, about religious matters, about how they integrate or not or don't seem to, or do seem to, with life, real life, the more I am aware that the notion of interpretation and how we go about interpreting remains crucial, and it is not just that it's crucial, but it remains foggy for so many people. So I'd like to hope that through some parts of this episode, I'm able to remove a bit of that fog and to bring a bit of clarity. One of the things that John and I have talked about uh, a number of times about interpretation is that interpretation is a way of engaging with the world that we are always already doing. Interpretation is not so much an action that we perform, it's something that's intimate to our being. Philosopher Martin Heidegger talked about understanding in this manner. Human beings don't understand things They act understandingly. And the point that he was trying to get across is that, for example, you couldn't put someone in a situation, you couldn't take any aspect of life and find someone who was not in a process of understanding, even where that process happens to be reflexive and tacit. So, for example, in the same way that we might talk about uh, the unconscious competence of a knitter. So someone who has unconscious competence, which is often what we call the highest level of competence, can knit flawlessly and have a very complicated conversation about politics or philosophy or what have you. Now, in, in the same way, some of our interpretations simply fly under the radar of our perception. Perhaps we're coming to a stop sign. You have interpreted that sign. You understand it means stop and you act accordingly. It's not something that you bring to consciousness, and you have to kind of walk yourself through the steps. Now, if you're a new driver, many of the things that for seasoned drivers are simply unconsciously competent, or represent unconscious competencies, are new, they have to be kind of rehearsed, gone over, made explicit. Now, there are other things that we do where we are always in a process of being aware of that interpretive context and acting to interpret, to fulfill that context, to bring an understanding. When we're talking about the Bible, uh, there are a number of things to think about in terms of interpretation. There's the text itself, the fact that it's a translation, the fact that it's an ancient text. There's the notion of to whom it was written and the expectations that seem to accompany the writing. um, If we have any feedback later on, from, let's say that we have, we have two letters, maybe, going out to a particular community. And does the second letter have, uh, give any sense of a- any feedback or any uh, reply or what have you related to the first letter? Interpretation is very much, if you like, like real estate. There are, if you will, three laws of real estate. Location, location, location. Interpretation is exactly the same thing. Context, context, context. So if we're talking about textual interpretation, words indicate sentences mean. Words indicate tree, desk, house. They indicate something, but they don't mean something. Not until I put the word in the context of a sentence does it have meaning. The tree beside the house nearly fell over. Then I understand something, rather than simply being having my attention drawn to something, having something indicated for me. So we might talk about the context, let's say, we'll talk about biblical interpretation, the context of a word within a verse, the context of a verse within a chapter, and then you know we can keep expanding. We can talk about the co-text, the text around on either side, and helping ourselves to understand, assisting with understanding on the basis of knowing the value of the contextual components surrounding the particular area that we might be looking to interpret. Another helpful piece to keep in mind is this idea of truth claims and truth values. So, we might be reading something, you might be reading something in a biblical text, and something is stated, that something is the case. Maybe let's say that that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a truth claim. Now, often what what tends to happen with Christians and problems with interpretations arise here, on the one hand— Someone might read that text and say that's ridiculous. It can't possibly mean that. So if we if we even think about, I'm not not even talking about people who aren't Christians necessarily, but you might think about Boltman, Rudolf Boltman, and and his notion of interpretation. He began, let's say, with the idea that certain things clearly aren't the case. Jesus clearly isn't the Son of God. This or that miraculous event clearly didn't happen. We know those things don't happen. Therefore, what do they mean? Now that's one extreme. The other extreme is to conflate or unnecessarily merge truth claims and truth values. So when it says Jesus is the Son of God, that's not only a statement, it's the proof for the statement. Now, either one of those extremes is, ex- is <laughs> enormously problematic, right? To rule out of bounds single historical actions is well I, I wasn't there at the time i haven't been i haven't uh, my, my the span of my years is rather limited, so if i'm to say that a unique action did not take place sometime in the historical past, i'm making a claim that's beyond my knowledge it's beyond my knowledge it's beyond my my or any logic to say that it's unlikely to say that I don't believe it happened, to say that I can't see how it happened. Those things all make sense no. I'm not making those claims relative to the uh, idea that Jesus is the Son of God. Some other people might. But the idea that it, that can't possibly be the case, I believe that's excluded. I can't know that. Similarly, though, the idea that Jesus is the Son of God is not only a truth claim, but represents in itself the value of that claim. That's likewise impossible. It's a claim. The claim and the value are not the same thing. The value of Jesus being the Son of God is Jesus literally being the Son of God. It is the Son of Godness, if you like, of Jesus that offers that. Now, some folks might say, as Christians, they might say, well then, gee, I mean, aren't we in a tough place? How are you going to prove that? Well, I think the text is fairly robust. It's very rich, and it offers us a lot of possibilities for understanding What validates this notion? What contributes to it, right? And therefore, what components could we see that validate it? So one of the things might be to say, well, I'll tell you what, Jesus being the Son of God means that this individual has a unique and uniquely powerful role in the world. And that's not just inherent in that one little statement, right? Because I'm going back to this, again, this textual richness that promotes and explains how Jesus... Through being the Son of God, holding that role, what that looks like, what the effect of that is, what the implications are. And as I understand those things, I am able to attribute belief to that notion or not, right? Depending upon my circumstances, depending upon my experiences, depending upon who I am. But I think oftentimes when Christians try to promote a notion as being both a claim and its own validation, That's a nutty idea. Don't do it. Anybody who is able to think things through is able to say, you know what, the idea that certain things didn't happen at a certain point in time when I wasn't there, that they could not possibly have happened, I have to throw my hands up in the air. I don't know that. That doesn't make sense to me. Likewise, it doesn't make sense that a claim can be its own validation, right? Which is another reason why, going back to previous podcasts, I've talked about the need for Christians to be in dialogue with non-Christians. And part of the necessity of that dialogue is no claim in and of itself represents the validation needed for other people who are outsiders to your perspective to understand and have enough substance to possibly believe and yet this is often the position that non-Christians try to squeeze or Christians try to squeeze non-Christians into. right I've given you the goods here. It's down to you you have to believe or not. No, you've, you've given me some truth claims here. What's the substance? Right? Why do you believe these claims? What, uh, what makes these claims believable for you? And very often, I hear very little from Christians about this. No? Another way to think about this, or another component that might highlight uh, the fact that there's a disjunction between claims and validation, and yet Christians put far more emphasis on claims and pretend that they represent their own validations, is the fact that often when I'm hearing Christian, what we might call testimonies, I'm hearing very vague stories that have particularly that have very loose connections between an event or a series of events and some sort of divine intervention, divine presence, or divine relevance, right? Presence, intervention, or relevance. And what I think we should be doing as Christians in an attempt to engage with those who are outside of our viewpoints and outside of our culture and beliefs is to be really thinking about what is it about Christianity that makes it believable to me? What is it about those experiences that have been significant? And sometimes I think we fall into one of two categories. One is we try to claim too much out of too little as Christians. So when we're talking about God and what God has done, I remember being in church numerous, numerous times and folks talking about somebody who had been prayed for and that person was healed, and, and that was a miracle. And I thought to myself, you know, first of all, I'm sure that there are loads of people out there who get prayed for who don't get healed and they die. Did God not like those people? Did somebody not pray hard enough or enough people or the right people? Get Getting some really, really tricky, thorny ground here if we start going in that direction. But the idea that such events represent divine intervention rather than that person got better. Those five people in that ward that day had that same operation. Four of them got better. Four of them had the same surgeon. One of them had a different surgeon. Does it mean that the one who had the other surgeon didn't get prayed for enough? Or does it mean the other surgeon wasn't quite as good? Does it mean that the person's situation was more complex or more edgy, more sketchy in terms of their ability? Are they older and less virile to return to health? Very difficult questions, right, but to try to claim too much out of too little problematic. The other piece which I often see is that Christians, if there is substance to their to their their perspective, part of the idea of testimony it, it's not like this whole sort of uh, legal the legal context, let's say where you are recounting events and you're sort of putting out what you see. The other component, in this comes right back to this whole idea that we're, start, we're talking about here in this podcast, is that you are offering your interpretation and the reasons why your interpretation is the best and no other interpretation will do. This involves a tremendous amount of reflection, of thought. It often involves Christians being willing to put their experiences, if you will, in the dock to put them up on trial and say, you know, here's what happened. Here's what I make of it, right? So interpretation could be very much thought of as, what do you make of something? Here's what I've made of it. And getting feedback from people. And I know in my own situation, I explained to my mentor why I had become a Christian. And he had a lot of questions. He had some doubts. He had some, yeah, some misgivings about some of my interpretations. I ended up writing about 20,000 words back to him. Now that's a pretty extreme situation and it was part of what I was doing at the time. Right, was going through this kind of autobiographical phase. And so this very much fit in. But what I find is that Christians have not most by and large they have not taken that step. If they're talking about something, they're simply laying out these events and saying kind of at the end and then and then a kind of full colon and then God or God did it or God was responsible. Without in any way, like, helping the listener not only understand the link, but be convinced by the link, because that's part of what's supposed to be happening. So if this were a a short story or what have you, I'd be lost. It wouldn't make sense to me. Why are you saying, I mean, you said these things, and then all of a sudden you're bringing God in in this kind of strange way, or this unexpected way, or this unconvincing way. And I think this is precisely what Christians don't want to do. So this, both notions, making too much of too little, and just stringing along ideas or events or purported facts without offering our own interpretations and our reasons for interpreting the matter that way and not another way. So interpretation is extremely important. And as I've just hinted here or just mentioned when I'm talking about this idea of if you like, quote-unquote, testimony in uh, in a Christian context, interpretation is not simply textual. Interpretation involves how we understand and what we make of our experiences. Now, something important to think about, just as um, texts always have a history, right? A text never comes pristine. There is an author who might have had certain intentions an audience who might have received that text in a certain way, there might be a certain history involved there. I'm not suggesting to follow current trends in hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is the art and science of interpretation, the art and science of interpretation. I'm not going to follow some of the more current sort of mid-early 2000s views in hermeneutics and say that authorial intention is the be-all and end-all. I don't believe that. And specifically, I believe that authorial intention is definitely indexed to the genre of whatever written matter you're reading. So uh, if it's a personal letter, if you're reading a personal letter and trying to understand it, most times the author of that letter is saying something to you or saying to something to the recipient or recipients, and that's a pretty big deal. Their intention, in other words, is pretty focal to the message they're communicating. The idea that a story is likewise guided by or should likewise be oriented around the author's intention, that for me is a far, far less certain notion. That that seems kind of sketchy to me. So in any event, there are a number of components that go into our ability to interpret various situations. And of course, one of the things that we're, we're really interpreting is our own story. Now, this is a pretty massive piece, and I think within Christian culture, massively misunderstood. Uh, What I think happens almost all the time is people have this idea, Christians promote this idea, that when you become a Christian, your story is God's story. Or your story somehow has to be diminished, uh, compacted, mm, tucked aside, to make room for God's story, because you're somehow some sort of extension of Jesus or something like that? No. No. No, no. I think one of the most beautiful examples of what it is to be in right relationship with God is the beginning of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. I certainly don't uh, agree with a number of the notions in those chronicles that others have seen to be related to Christianity. But this one, I think, is key. And it's it's Aslan, if you like, the, the, the divine being, who gathers all the speaking animals and, and the humans at that point around himself, and his comment to them is, I give you yourselves. And I think this is a tremendous and tremendously beautiful notion that we are given, if you like, the responsibility and stewardship of our own lives. And so part of what is really big on my agenda and is a core value is being my best self. I believe I'm responsible for that. And I want to be that because I like who I am and I like my life when I am that person. So in the context of interpreting ourselves, we have the 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 notion, uh, the reality, I guess, that we are, we all have an interpretation of who we are, our identity. We have interpreted our past, you know, and I want to get away from, very much get away from this idea that we are writing our own stories. You know, some of that is out there in popular culture, and I think that is um, utter bunk. If you think you can write your own story, then I would urge you to write a story where you become successful, wealthy, happy, you're not sick and everything goes well because that's a story I'd like for myself. And if you can figure out how to do it, please let me know because I want to get on that train. But the reality is life's bigger than me. Now, in hermeneutical theory, we often talk about the idea of narrating our own story. We seek, in other words, to occupy the narrator's perspective and I think this is really crucial. As Christians have uh, begin to think about what it means to be involved with a belief set that involves, that comprises not only ideas, but entities that involves relational, massive relational component, the ability to interpret and understand who we are, the ability to conceptually see what's involved in identity is massive. And I think it's this lack of conceptual savvy, this very empty, if you will, and uh, kind of, yeah, awkward conceptual toolbox that doesn't really contain very much. It keeps so many Christians in a position where those outside of the of the Christian faith look at us and think, man, you guys you make these grand claims and you've got nothing to show for it. You've got very little to show, right? So for instance, when we talk about a conceptual toolbox, we might talk about being aware that we try to occupy the narrator's position in our own lives. We are obviously the actors. You know, I'm, for instance, I've just moved to a new city. I'm trying to uh, foster a better education for my daughters. I'm trying to uh, competently put out podcasts on a regular basis. I'm trying to meet my uh, deadlines and requirements at work. I'm trying to cultivate a thriving relationship with my spouse. these are some of the storylines in which I'm an actor. And I also get the opportunity to be the audience sometimes, because I tell people, you know, how's it going? They'll ask, what's going on? And, you know, I don't always know in advance, and I don't think we always do. And part of the process of recounting our story is hearing it for ourselves and actually weighing up the validity of our own perspectives. This is one of the ways we do that, actually, by engaging with other folks, and sometimes even this process can be kind of an automatic process, a self-driven process, let's say when you journal, right? It's a great idea to journal. So having this conceptual toolbox developing that's got some content to it, some useful tools, and developing some conceptual savvy is essential, I think, for Christians to be living the Christian life as the biblical text, describes and almost commands, right? In order for me to be in that love relationship with God, I've got to have a very deep, robust, ongoing ongoing engagement with myself, but deep and robust self-awareness. And of course, the other component that I, I get when I recount to someone what happened, so uh, I might tell somebody, how, you know, how it's going with my move to this new city, I might do something much more elaborate and precise and present to my mentor uh, 20,000 words on why I became a Christian, what these series of events meant to me, how I saw God interacting or present, what the decision sets were for me, and why I chose what I chose and why I think that the way I'm defining it and the way I'm interpreting it are the right ways and none other. These are also opportunities to get feedback, right? And the more we are open to the notion that feedback is really healthy and valuable, and the more we begin to court, if you will, knowledgeable, learned, competent sources of feedback, the more likely it seems to me that we, as human beings, and particularly Christians, will be able to navigate some of that tricky space. When it comes to integrating life and faith, because we get some feedback, we begin to be brought to consciousness not only about our views but about our strengths and weaknesses. so being able to competently assess a situation is going to require you know particularly i'm not talking uh, assess I uh, i don't know a collision of two vehicles, but assess a conversation, assess a social situation, uh, assess an incident that transpired in a group. These require some really significant social and psychological, anthropological, a number of different inputs and informers that need to come to us uh, or be, you know, within our reach so that we can employ those. In my view, where Christians only aim for or believe that the Bible is what they need, They are selling themselves massively short. God created an entire world. The Bible is a remarkably small piece of it. The Word of God as Logos, fully, you know, Logos in Greek being Word, we talk about that being Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah. And so this notion of Word as text alone, as this document originally composed in both Hebrew and Greek, is a very flimsy, partial, very narrow sliver of what this broader sense of word and logos entails. And I think we need to keep that in mind as well. It will keep us from, if you like, I think, idolizing the biblical text and allowing the biblical text somehow to take the place of not only God, but our own investigated awareness of ourselves and the role and the co-partnership sort of Collaborative space that we are to be occupying along with God. In the next podcast, I want to continue with this notion where I'm going to go a little bit deeper, and I'm going to take us into this idea of personal history and biblical history and how these two things work. I may not have convinced readers or listeners, pardon me, who are particularly uh, you know, knowledgeable about the concept that my history and my perspective and my story needs to get merged into God's story. Because I think that that on the one hand takes place to a certain degree, on the other hand, I always remain myself, my story always remains valuable, and those two histories need to be formulated. The relationship needs to be formulated in a way that does justice to both, not as a sort of sense of fairness, but again on the level of integration. What's it like in real life? Because we can make, as Christians, all the lofty claims we want, but when real life shows our claims to be false or just inaccurate, well, you're actually you're worse off than bef- before you started. So we want to avoid that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.